get our bearings a little bit as we begin uh, the fourth week of our study. I know we got some new folks too, which is great because we want to look at the letter of 1 Peter as a whole. Um, to recap, we've got the Apostle Peter, and he's writing to these Christians in Asia Minor, uh, what we, we would know as Turkey, and he's focusing on faith under pressure. Uh, what's it look like to have hope in the midst of suffering? Uh, the main point, and we said this each week, is that God's people um, are a misunderstood minority living under the rule of a different king. Persecution offers a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. So week one, we talked about the great salvation we have in Christ. A salvation and hope that tells us that we are always safe in the kingdom of God. Uh, that nothing, not even death, which is really important if you're going to be persecuted, uh, can derail the living hope we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The second week, we talked about our vocation, this call to holiness, um, our identity, uh, being part of God's family, um, which in some ways meant we are this kind of you know, misunderstood group living under the rule of a different king, especially then. 1 Peter 2.9 tied up a lot of these loose ends. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, last week, we uh, <laughs> uh, looked at the first main part of the letter that really starts to look at what's it, what are we going to do when suffering comes? What are we going to do when there is... Uh, pressure and persecution, and how is this an opportunity to show others the way uh, and the love of Jesus? We spent some time on the cultural background of this letter, and really the potential for us to misunderstand a lot of what's going on if we read our context uh, back into it. Uh, Peter primarily is talking about a submission in many areas of life, submission for the sake of mission. Um, taking the example of Jesus as uh, not just the one who has died for us and brought us salvation, but the one who gives us a pattern um, how to live and even how to respond uh, when unjust things come our way. Um, that's one of those sections we don't always love because that's not natural. Uh, we don't want our ethics and response to suffering to be shaped by the cross because um, that's painful. <laughs> Um, tonight, we're going to look at a, a big chunk, uh, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 4, 11, um, about how more so, how does suffering and persecution give us the opportunity uh, to show others the love of Jesus? Um, what's it mean to suffer for righteousness sake as stewards of God's grace? Um, and we'll come back to this, but one of the main kind of verses here is 1 Peter three fifteen. 15. Uh, you may know this already. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, uh, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Um, and by the way, you just have to love the Apostle Peter, the fisherman, the one who, when they came to arrest Jesus, cut a guy's ear off, going, hey, when this comes... Handle it with gentleness and respect. Um, God has done a work in his life. Indeed. So uh, let's dig in to uh, 1 Peter 3. We'll start in uh, verses 8 and 9 of this chapter. Um, here's what Peter writes. Finally, all of you. So he's spoken to some individual situations. If you're in this state, if you're a wife, if you're a husband, if you're this or you're that. Hey, for everybody, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, uh, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Um, and so in this section, uh, Peter is working on what does it mean uh, to respond to uh, persecution suffering, turbulence, what's it mean to live in a potentially hostile environment? And he says the first thing is he talks about our internal makeup. That if we're going to be in the midst of a, a culture where we are misunderstood, uh, not for wrong reasons, but for righteousness sake, he makes a big point of that. Like if you're just misunderstood because you're jerks, Christians, 
Um, that's not what we're talking about. But if there's things about the way of Jesus that provoke misunderstanding and turbulence, well, you've got to talk about the unity you have within. Because um, this has to be a community that strengthens and bears with one another. So he just lists all these things. You've got to be unity of mind. Uh, sympathy. You've got to actually be able to you know, sympathize and empathize with both one another and those uh, in the world. Uh, love. Um, a tender heart. Um, and a humble mind. And um, you know, we'll talk more. But I was just thinking, I don't know about you guys, but uh, when I'm in a difficult situation... Um, if I'm having an argument with someone or something's going wrong, uh, definitely if I feel like I'm being wronged, um, the, the most natural thing is not to be tenderhearted. Uh, the most natural thing is not to be humble, right? Um, you, you are much more prone to go, hey, how do I get through this situation? Maybe by self-protecting. Kind of turtle mode, go through it, um, and then how do I speak up and advocate and make sure I win in this situation? He's saying, no, we need to be united, sympathetic, have brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Um, and I do think that some of this is, um, it's interesting. When, when I first started teaching First Peter, it was probably about you know, maybe 20 years ago, and, you know, uh, we had to make sure and draw a big gulf between our situation, the situation of these Christians, uh, and even Christians around the world. Because it's like, hey, guys, no one here is being persecuted. <laughs> like, persecution by definition involves blood. That's always been what I've said. <laughs> um, maybe pressure, maybe some uh, social isolation, maybe uh, you're in a work environment where certain corners are cut and your refusal to cut those corners is actually really problematic. Um, but let's kind of make a little distinction. I, I do think we, we are feeling a little more of, as kind of nominal cultural Christianity kind of goes away, um, I think we're feeling a little weirder. We're, we're feeling a little more distinct um, in many ways. That There used to be this kind of existing veneer of Christianity, which had its own you know, strengths and weaknesses. Um, but I do think we're going to increasingly need to draw on this letter and be in a place where, like, yeah, we're really misunderstood. Like, people don't understand where we're coming from, how we make decisions. Um, I, I thought of it this way, that if there are cracks in, you know, Christendom, those are now fault lines, and you're seeing them really begin to separate. Um, and so Christians are not fitting in naturally here as much any longer. <clears throat> Um, and we can respond to that a couple ways, too. Some will bemoan that loss. Um, some will fight, kind of a culture war type mentality. Doesn't seem very tenderhearted, but that's been a response. Um, you know, for me, I think it's just a reminder that maybe that's normal Christianity. Like, that's been what's been normal for most of the history of the church. And for many around the world, that's what it, a normal faith is. Um, and maybe that's going to be good for us um, to be in that uh, in that thing because the the Christian bubble has has burst. Um, and again, I don't think that's a necessarily terrible thing. Uh, if you look at the New Testament, you know Christians are unprotected, they're vulnerable. Uh, there can be both official and unofficial pressure and persecution. And so I think it's maybe helpful to okay, what's this look like? Like the church has been here before. Um, They've actually flourished and even grown in the midst of these situations. Um, how do we learn from that? And how do we live faithfully in the times we've been given um, instead of trying to live in a different time or, or bemoaning the loss or something uh, like that? Um, one of the things I do think is going to be increasingly key for us, um, and it's, I get it from this, is that the unity of the church, the so our unity has to be... Um, because you're seeing the church be uh, wonderfully, actually uh, diverse. Um, different genders, you have different people coming to church, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different temperaments. Um, you know, we're, we're here pretty close to uh, Greek row. You don't want the church to be like a fraternity or sorority, where if you meet someone, you can just assume you know where to place them. <laughs> Um, and that's, again, not like trying to speak bad about fraternities or sororities. That's just to say, like, the goal here is not do I fit in and we're all the same. 
It's, hey, how do we come in and learn to love one another, bear with one another? Um, how are we enriched by that distinction and difference of background and those kinds of things? Um, if you do, you know, you read the New Testament, there's nothing more shocking than how the church subverted the natural barriers they had in their culture. Um, dismantled barriers of gender and race and social class. Uh, Paul, you know, Paul had been a rabbi. And one of the things you would pray as a rabbi in the first century is you would actually give thanks daily that you were not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Like, high five me. I won that today. Um, just, the, just the shift of that person writing, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Again, Peter, who cut the dude's ear off. When trouble comes, meet it with gentleness and respect. <laughs> like, there's, a, there's a, a supernatural work being done um, with that. Um, and so it's interesting that Peter commands them to have unity. Elsewhere translated as live in harmony. Um, and, you know, that does sound great in practice, right? Mass all lots of nods. Yeah, we, we like that. We want to see all. It's hard. Like, you know, I, I have fun. I, I've for years would talk about us being a purple congregation in terms of politics. Um, and I didn't mean that we were a fuzzy middle or didn't have convictions in political areas. What I mean by that when I say it is uh, we're going to have some folks who approach things from a Republican mindset. Some are approaching them from a Democrat mindset. Uh, we're not saying, like, that we're going to all approach this the same. Um, none of these systems line up perfectly with the ethics of the kingdom. <laughs> um, and so, of course, uh, we're not. And um, it, was, it was interesting. Like, a lot of folks really appreciate that because you're wanting to go, hey, there's got to be a better way than some of the polarization uh, we see. And that all sounds well and good until you're having soup across from someone and start talking politics. <laughs> and go, oh, we're not on the same page. <clears throat> I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I trust you. I, ooh, I don't know if this person is faithful. What Bible are they reading? Um, this, it, it actually takes work. Um, it actually takes uh, bearing with one another. It actually is being uh, uh, some clarity on what are the most important things we agree on so that there could be some of these things that it's okay to disagree on um, and to have different convictions and solutions on. Um, and I think one thing that is really key uh, is, is that we have these conversations in the context of our real flesh and blood church community. Because, um, you know, you can do a lot online with ideals and I wish this and this. But, like, again, when you're sitting across from someone and you're called to pray for them and love them and extend the peace to them um, and maybe serve them and, and they rub you the wrong way, <clears throat> um, that's actually part of the process for you to grow. That's part of the Spirit making you more into the image of Christ. Um, and it's actually one of the real uh, disadvantages if we end up in churches where we all think alike and if we are all coming from the same place. Um, we don't grow. We seek that out as a kind of a status quo of safety, but we don't grow uh, in the process. And you definitely don't have the world look on and go, man, what is different over there? Because like those kind of folks, should, like I'm not used to them hanging out. Um, they, they seem to like each other. They're even like, they're joking and like, y'all should not be talking because you see the world differently. Um, that provokes good questions. Um, I think that actually is how we get questions about, hey, well, what is it, that, what hope do these people have? What is this faith? Who is this Jesus that has brought about this kind of unity? Um, Scott McKnight, who is writing on this passage, he points out, and this wouldn't surprise you, um, a lot of this is rooted in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He's drawing from that ethic. He's talking about being gentle. There's a, a generally kind of a pacifistic nature to what Peter's saying. He's not saying take out your sword like I did and hurt that person. Um, I can remember I, I got to teach the Sermon on the Mount at our last congregation, and um, it, was, <laughs> it, it was not particularly purple, let's say. Um, North Dallas, so you can kind of do the math on that. Um, we had a men's Bible study, and we had a general's table. 
um, because uh, several of the local uh, weapons manufacturers, um, they had brought in retired generals to do their contracting and schmoozing and that kind of thing. So we had a general's table um, our, and uh, had some of these guys in a Bible study we did on the Sermon on the Mount. And so I will never forget trying to talk about uh, how there have been ways Christians have thought about violence and the appropriate use of force. And so we talked about just war theory, like, hey, here's when Christians have theorized, like, here's when force can be used. And we, then we kind of talked about some of the more pacifist strains that are kind of getting that from the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I'm like looking out the corner of my eye. Uh, this guy is a three-star retired general. Um, he oversaw Germany after World War II and oversaw helicopters in Vietnam. And he finished, and he's like, that sounds good. Got to get your blood dead. <laughs> it's like, you have to do what? He's like, you got to get your blood dead. They kill yours, you gotta kill theirs. Uh, I just think we should have to make sure to pray for them through the process. <laughs> um, and we ended up having some really good conversations about how he tried to not de dehumanize, but it was just like, like, man, we are on a different universe here. Um, but I grew through the conversation. He grew through the conversation. We were able to talk about, again, here have been different Christian approaches to this. Um, and they pray for this church. They've given money to support this church. I mean, you know, it, he's a dear brother uh, in the Lord. We just really were not on the same page uh, on that issue. Um, and that, that happens, but it doesn't happen if you're not diving in to actually get to know people. It doesn't happen if you have an echo chamber or you're stuck in a feedback loop. It happens when you're having real conversations with folks that are, that are different, and there's diversity in the midst. Um, John Stott, who you may know, he's a, he was a Church of England minister. Um, he served the same place for how long, Robin, do you know? 50 years. 50 years, yeah. Um, just great Bible teacher, theologian. And he says, the problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tension between the ideal and the reality. The ideal is beautiful. The church is the chosen and beloved people of God, his own special treasure, the covenant community to whom he has committed himself forever, engaged in continuous worship of God, compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace, a pilgrim people headed for the eternal city. And all that's true. Because, but in reality, we who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals, half-educated and half-saved, <laughs> uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance than our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation, which is at least readily available from the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. You're just naming that tension. Um, and you're chuckling because we know it. <laughs> we see it, and it's partly us. We're part of that tension. Um, and so Peter is trying to get them ready for what's coming. Um, I love what he does next. Is he's going to root all this. He actually doesn't point right to the Sermon on the Mount. He points to the Psalms. And so look at verse, uh, let's look at this next part here, verses 10 through 12. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's this command to seek peace and pursue it. Um, Here's one of my takeaways from that. There's a lot of places, uh, there, there are spas in town where they advertise tranquility and peace. It's really nice. You go and you, know, you pay your money, you get your appointment, you go in, and it, it all just kind of comes to you, right? It's an atmosphere created for relaxation and gentleness and rest. Um, and what I get from this uh, to seek peace and pursue it is that it's going to be somewhat elusive. Like it's actually going to take work. This is not going to come naturally. 
that we have this kind of unity and peace within the church. It's something that has to be sought. Um, and we have to seek peace and pursue it. I think it's something we actually have to contend for. That rather than fighting one another, we're actually fighting and contending for unity and for peace. And so we're told to seek peace um, and pursue it. Don't expect uh, for it just to come to us. Um, and then uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says that the irony is that Christians, according to Peter, like we should be trying to figure out what do we do with the fact that we stand out as so weird and distinctive in the world? <laughs> um, but usually when that happens, if we are standing out as weird or distinctive, if we're being mocked or criticized, um, what's the natural reflex of church people? We just give it right back. Uh, we mock and criticize right back, and then we're just behaving like everyone else. It doesn't set us apart at all. We repay slander with slander. We collude with the surrounding world um, instead of going, hey, what does it mean to be transformed by the Spirit? What does it mean to think about the example of Jesus who didn't return insult, um, who suffered righteously and justly, um, and again, some of this has been and can be misused in the church, where they'll have someone like, hey, we're going to put you down and we're going to keep you there. And it's justified some things that are not always good. But the basic idea is that we want to have a cross-shaped ethic and think through how do we pursue peace? How do we seek it? How do we go after it? Um, what are we doing with the fact that it's starting to feel a little stranger to be a Christian than maybe it did 10 years ago, uh, 20 years ago? Um, how can we learn from and be encouraged by believers around the world who have lived in some of these situations? Uh, some of you know that when I was ordained to the Anglican Church, I was ordained by the Anglican Church of Rwanda um, because they wanted to reach North America. And so like any good mission organization, they said we need to train and send indigenous missionaries. And so they started training and sending and ordaining uh, North Americans uh, to come here and do this work. Um, but we learned a ton from our Rwandan brothers and sisters because they had just come through the genocide. Um, they had just been doing reconciliation. Um, you know, I met bishops who, you know, two-thirds of their family were slaughtered. Um, they watched congregations come apart. Um, and they're very used to the, the distinctly countercultural call that they had as Christians. Um, and their specific call that they found was so countercultural is, hey, you've gone through something like a genocide. How do you respond? And so they kind of took the model from South Africa of truth and reconciliation committees. Um, like, we can't lock everybody up. We can't punish everybody. Like, there's got to be a mechanism of uh, dealing with what has actually happened and finding forgiveness and reconciliation. And so they would tell incredible stories about um, how folks had reconciled with one another. Uh, folks where you know, horrendous things had happened. And now, um, partly by the faith that they had, you saw forgiveness, you saw reconciliation, you saw a future for this country that tore itself apart. Um, it's that kind of thing that we're trying to figure out. Like, what, what is that power? Like, what, is, what is there that we can learn from and, and to grow from? Um, you can talk to different uh, missions agencies who work in parts of the world that are definitely hostile to the faith. And, you know, sometimes interesting to see, just hear how different it is. You know, how do you do evangelism? What does it look like for someone to convert as a Christian? Um, there's a ministry called Asian Access, A2. And um, they work predominantly in some Hindu countries that are very hostile to the Christian faith, where uh, to convert is a, it's a it's terrible. I mean, it's just the kind of place where like, they'll hold a funeral for you and your family. <laughs> um, and so uh, I came across this list, and they asked seven questions if someone is converting and considering coming into the church. Um, it's not the questions we ask at the St. Thomas 101 class. <laughs> uh, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? 
Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? Um, and I don't bring that up to make light or to trivialize anything. Those are real questions being asked um, in places around the world. Um, and in some ways, that's a normal Christianity that we see rooted here in First Peter. Um, it's not something to make us feel guilty. Um, I mentioned during our last session, uh, Andrew White, the vicar of Baghdad. Um, so we had Andrew come and speak at our church in Dallas um, and it was after just some terrible stuff had gone on with ISIS. And um, it was really interesting because we were, you, I think you'll, you'll like this, or this will be interesting to you. Um, we were very awkward around Andrew. Um, like, you've lived through this incredible hard time and persecution. And like, we're just, you know, we're not that. And um, you know what he said? <laughs> He said, uh, <laughs> I think you have a deficient ecclesiology. Said, what do you mean? He goes, the body of Christ has undergone this suffering. You have gone through it. And we need your prayers and we need your affection. Um, and it's this sense of like, this is what it is to be a normal uh, follower of Jesus. So um, let's go to this next passage here. And you can't laugh at the pictures that are going to come up. <laughs> All right. Um, when else have you seen a Bible study with a Homer Simpson? First uh, Peter uh, three thirteen through seventeen. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous uh, for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Remember, in other places in this letter, he's kind of said, "Hey, here's how you're going to not suffer." He's going, "Yeah, if it happens." And it's unavoidable. Uh, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you uh, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, uh, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Um, let's talk about this a little bit here. By the way, if, you, if this is really intriguing to you, um, this book is by Dallas Willard. It's called The Allure of Gentleness. And it's a whole book on what does it mean for our apologetics and our dialogue to be rooted in gentleness and respect. Um, I think this was probably published like before there were like five Mr. Rogers uh, movies. You probably now would have like Mr. Rogers as like the cover kind of icon of, of what he's trying to talk about. Um, this is a this is a picture of uh, actually first century persecution. This is in the arena in the Colosseum. Um, and you know this is just Homer being interviewed about his faith, which probably is not being answered well with gentleness uh, and respect or good content. So that's what those are. Um, but I do want to, before we talk about uh, gentleness or respect, do you want to geek out for just a minute on something? Okay. This is, I think you're going to like this. Who's got a Bible? Who wants to read? All right. Emma. Uh, Isaiah 8, verses 12 through 13. kind of cool. Okay. 12, through 13. 12 through 13. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Okay, here's what's really cool is verse 13. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. You see what Peter is doing? <laughs> Peter has taken this verse from the Old Testament, Isaiah 8, in reference to the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Um, and he doesn't talk about the Father in this section. What does he say? Christ the Lord you shall honor as holy. 
It's just this little bitty nerdy detail where Peter is quoting an Old Testament passage about Almighty God and saying, that's Christ the Lord. Um, he, it just is, you're starting to see how the church is recognizing the divinity and person of Jesus. Um, that the Messiah was not just this human, but was divine to be identified with the Lord. And there's a lot of places like this where the New Testament will take an Old Testament quote. And the next thing you know, instead of the Lord of hosts or God Almighty, you have Christ the Lord or you have the Holy Spirit. Um, and those are a lot of the building blocks that led to the doctrine of the Trinity. I've said before, there's not a chapter and verse with here's the Trinity. It's all through the New Testament. Um, and you can see it just in little places like this where you see their understanding is going, oh, the, the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. <laughs> like, that's the Father. This is the Son. That's the Spirit. Three persons, one God. Oh, my goodness. Well, what have felt like blasphemy is now becoming their confession. Um, and so you see that all over the place. All right, back to gentleness and respect. Uh, it says here, always being prepared to make a defense. Um, that word in Greek uh, at root is where we get the English word apology. And this is where we get the idea of apologetics. Um, who here has heard of apologetics? Who here has a positive connotation of apologetics? Who has a negative connotation of apologetics? Who says useful sometimes, not always? All right. Um, this, is, this is one, and we, we love this in the church, where we'll find a little idea and we'll make a cottage industry out of it. And so there's a whole cottage industry of apologetics, which is, it's great. Um, when I think about apologetics, it usually involves uh, not gentleness or respect. It usually involves argumentation. Um, it usually involves debate. Um, it usually involves uh, very rational thoughts and data, some of which is good. Um, the seminary I went to, there was a, a theologian there. His name was Norm. I won't tell you his last name. And apparently he was the best debater on campus. <laughs> and he would win every debate about anything. And so occasionally in the faculty, if they wanted to, you know, get a new, let's say, hey, we're going to vote on if there's going to be a new snack, you know, thing in the break room or whatever it would be, um, they would make sure that Norm took the other position. Because what would happen is they would have a staff meeting and they were going to have a debate. And they were going to have a long debate. And Norm was going to win the debate. But that meant he was going to lose the war. Because <laughs> he was going to be such a jerk while he did it then no one would vote for what he had just proven to be correct. And they would always vote for the other side. <laughs> um, which is a little dysfunctional. There's probably some like counselors who could work on the family systems of that faculty. Um, but I, don't, I think some people, when they hear apologetics, they think about the really argumentative person. Um, at its root, apologetics, or I, I think they also think about it as a real, you know, how does apologetics convince you um, to come into the faith? Um, apologetics is a useful tool. There's a lot of knowledge that can be really helpful. And I think it can actually be helpful to bolster faith when doubt comes. Um, I've never met anyone who has argued into the kingdom. Um, frankly, I've never met anyone that their objections to the faith were purely rational either. Um, there's almost always a story of hurt um, or being let down or hypocrisy. Um, now, again, that could be different if you're in a context where there's no, you know, there's, there's, it's completely um, not just, you know, um, some of the, like if you're in this kind of Hindu area or some of the areas we could be in, there's just no understanding of the gospel. So they're not even, but when I talk to people, it's usually, they know the basics. Um, and there's a, even if it sounds rational, there's a deep emotional wound which actually I think is why it's really helpful that Peter says, hey, do this with gentleness and respect. Like, think about how you are talking to this person. Think about how you are giving uh, them time. Um, sometimes wait till they ask. <laughs> uh, and then I think the other thing is that Peter says, in terms of what we're supposed to talk about, um, 
he bases we should tell people the reason for the hope that is in us. Um, that's a pretty specific call to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the difference he's made and the difference he can make in their lives. It's not to argue, you know, finer points of minutia and data and, and you know, get in the middle of all that. Um, it's even not an invitation to only talk about yourself. I mean, I've heard that where someone's like, hey, tell me about your faith. And like, they'll talk for 30 minutes. I'm like, you did not mention Jesus. Like that, that's a self-autobiography. <laughs> We're supposed to give a defense by saying, hey, here's who Jesus is. And yes, he's made a difference. Uh, but you're talking about the content of the faith, giving testimony uh, to Jesus. And this is probably not, uh, probably the context here is a pretty official uh, scenario or a setting. It's envisioning you've been taken before the authorities to answer for something. And now you're going to be asked what that is. Um, this is not you're flying on an airplane reading a C.S. Lewis book. And someone says, hey, I've got this question about pain and the problem of evil. Um, that's great if that happens. But um, uh, in free preview, our next five-week session is going to be on C.S. Lewis. It's going to be awesome. Um, but this is like, a, hey, you've been dragged into court. Like, you've got to answer, um, and you've got to actually talk about, like we see all through the book of Acts, this person, Jesus, and his death and resurrection. Um, that's what Peter is calling uh, them to. Um, there, there's a, a French Roman Catholic uh, cardinal um, named uh, Cardinal Suhard. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. He says, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. Um, Is that his quote? Maybe. Should be. It's a good quote. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing. You're, you're having, hopefully, people are, I mean, you know people are watching all the time. And they're wondering, does their life make sense if God exists? Um, usually if there is any kind of a social or a real cost for following Jesus, um, that's a, okay, well, they're going to, that, that kind of clarifies things uh, of who is following the Lord. So uh, let's keep going here a little bit. I don't, I don't want to run, I ran out of time last week. I don't want to run out of time too quickly here. Um. Peter does what he's done throughout the book. He's going to talk about suffering. He's going to exhort them to you know, endure or to meet it well. And then he's going to root it in the example of Jesus. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, take a breath, because we're about to get blindsided by rabbit trail Peter. <laughs> Get ready. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Um, that is a scattergun of rabbit trails. Uh, you know, and I love it because Peter just evokes it like, of course you know what all this is. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you know what all this is? I mean, we're talking about Jesus, and of course we're talking about Moses, you know, Noah and these spirits. Uh, and baptism, of course, and the resurrection, the ascension, and Jesus reigning over <laughs> the authorities. Um, at least, what, four, five, six theological things going on here? How, where does this come from? How does it fit into this overall letter and argument? Well, a couple of things that are interesting. Um, is first, in many cases, he's talking about how do you live out your Christian faith when everyone around you thinks you're crazy? 
there's no better example of that than Noah in the Bible. Um, and then, uh, if you read some of the literature of the time, kind of first century uh, Jewish stuff, there's a book called First Enoch. Uh, it's, it's not a biblical book, but it's a very popular work that they would draw theology and things from. And Enoch said, like, the way all that went bad were these spirits, where the, these fallen angels came and they intermarried with women, and it was, you know, they had, they had spirits. This is uh, Michael Heiser's stuff, if you read any of his stuff. Um, and that's why, like, the flood needed to happen and Noah's Ark happened and all that. Um, okay, and then the next thing that's pretty interesting is that we kind of started the first week, we looked at where some of these places are that Peter names in Turkey. Um, and what you kind of find out if you dig a little bit is basically this vicinity is where everyone in the ancient world thought the ark came to rest. This is not that random. It'd be like if I was telling you something and then this and then this and then between the hedges and you know, it, that's in our, um, it's in our cognitive frame of what's happening here. Um, that, of course, connects to baptism. Um, and then he talks about kind of these authorities. Well, what's, what's going on? <clears throat> well, the Christians are going to undergo this official persecution. Uh, the world's going to think they are crazy. They're going to have authorities come against them. And there's at least three things I think Peter's doing here. Um, one is he's actually going back to another similar example so they can learn from it. Um, hey, there have been times where, you know, spirits have led people astray. People have thought the followers of God were crazy. Um, and so here's what kind of happened. In fact, those spirits, they got put in prison. And he's like, you know what Jesus did? He went down and told them what's up. <laughs> like, they're, they're answering those questions. Um, baptism came through. I mean, Noah, everyone thought it was crazy. He is preserved and saved. Um, and that's a little odd how it's, it's actually the ark that's a picture of baptism, not the water. You did not want to be in the water during the flood, um, did you? <laughs> no, you want to be in the ark to go through it. Uh, and so he looks at how that if you have been baptized, um, you have essentially been put in this family in a way that will provoke this response and persecution. And he goes, don't forget that the Lord Jesus is over everything and over every authority. The spirits in prison down below that messed things up, he went and he let them know he is now victorious through his death. And he's referencing his coming resurrection. It's kind of a holy Saturday moment. That's as low as you can go. As high as you can go, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, ruling over everything. And so in many ways, he's saying if you come into conflict with the authorities and you've given your defense before them with gentleness and respect, even if things go bad, it's not final. And Jesus is over those authorities. Um, that's, I think, the thread of what's happening here. And again, there's a lot of, you know, we could run down a rabbit trail with each one of those issues. Um, and that's, believe me, people have. <laughs> there are books and articles and, um, you know, uh, if you've ever read a commentary going through a, a Bible passage, they'll have like the main flow of the commentary and then you'll see excurses. <clears throat> This is one where you have like five excurses in a row. Like let's, let's break the argument to talk about these topics. But I think it's part of the overall argument. Um, and it's actually germane to these folks living in Turkey where the ark would have come to rest. That's just kind of how some of that figures, uh, figures in. Um, so then from there, after that big section, um, we have what? Six minutes left. I think we're good. All right, we'll, we'll move fast here. All right. Um, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live uh, for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3, for the time uh, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, uh, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Um, in other words, he's saying, grow up, mature in the Lord, um, 
don't live a life like those around you. And then I love it. He's like, come on, man. Most of y'all have done enough of this. <laughs> like you had your fiddle uh, in this area. Um, I talked through this section one time and actually put an image of Will Ferrell from old school. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie. I don't recommend it as a pastor. Um, but the basic idea is this like mid, you know, midlife crisis guy has been like, man, I had a lot of fun in college in my fraternity. I'm going to invent a fraternity from my neighborhood kind of a thing. And they're, you know, partying. It's, 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 it's not great. But it's this idea of like, dude, you're a grown adult. Like you had, you had your time to do all that. Uh, and hopefully like we wouldn't recommend college kids do all that. But if you had your time and did all that, you did enough of it. Now grow up into uh, maturity. Um, don't go after these same uh, evil desires. Um, and certainly don't look for all this kind of stuff. And you can imagine, um, pagans, if you were, if you were a, you know, of, of the world of the first century, um, you view Christians kind of as these killjoys. Um, I mean, you abstained from almost everything fun everybody did. You didn't go to the theater with very risque performances. Um, you didn't go to chariot races. You certainly didn't bet on them. You didn't go to gladiator fights with their blood and gore unless you were on the wrong end of it in the arena. They condemned the uh, pleasures of uh, indulgent temper, sex outside of marriage, drinking, drunkenness, slander, lying, covetousness, theft, all the fun stuff people did. <laughs> and now they're abstaining from. And it's like, yeah, y'all, y'all did enough of that. You're good. Um, let's, let's move on into maturity. And, and in many ways, they also refused to burn uh, incense to the emperor. Um, and, you know, if they were just not doing one or two of these things, like, okay, that's their weird deal. Um, like, Tex doesn't like pickles. That's weird. If you go to Chick-fil-A with Tex, you're like, that's kind of strange. He doesn't like pickles. He says, don't put pickles on my sandwich. Um, but if you said, Tex, let's go to lunch, and he's like, I don't like pickles, and I don't like chicken or buns or waffle fries, and I, I think this Chick-fil-A thing is, is ridiculous, and they're a bad company, and they should open on Sunday, and he just like, whoa now. <laughs> this is a cultural disconnect. Like, you're not just someone who abstains from one or two things. You're a bad citizen <laughs> at that point. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, it would be the same kind of idea of if you think about us, um, you know, if you, if you took, if, let's say you came, if the bishop comes to St. Thomas, which the bishop comes about once a year, uh, Bishop Frank is coming in June, um, I can almost guarantee you uh, he's going to open with a Georgia football joke. Why is he going to do that? He doesn't even, I mean, for, actually, Bishop Frank doesn't even really like football. Archbishop Foley does. But all he's doing is a, he's making an assumption about us. He's trying to find a common rapport. Um, and if you, can you imagine the whole church like, that's not funny. We don't, we, we don't do football. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? This is a church in Athens. Like this is, you know, now if you said, I don't like that team, I like another team. Okay, now you're in the conversation. Um, these folks are totally ejecting from the normal way of life by abstaining from all these things. And so, of course, folks are going, man, y'all are weird. Um, y'all are bad for our neighborhood. <laughs> you won't have drunkenness and orgies with us. Get out of here. I mean, like that sounds ridiculous. Like that's, that, it was that countercultural what they're being called to. Um, that you would have been looked at not just as strange, but as bad, as evil, as less than for not participating um, in these things. Peter's saying following Jesus means we no longer just indulge our flesh and live for the here and now. But we have this eternal perspective, which again, if you might have persecution, you need that eternal perspective. Um, or you're not going to come through it uh, well. Um, Probably if you come to faith in Asia Minor, Turkey, you can either take the path of least resistance, just going with the normal values and behaviors and practices, or going, oh my gosh, 
There's a different way of life that's even counter to what I was taught growing up that God calls us into. What does it mean to be obedient uh, to that? Um, All right, we'll go real quick here. Verses 4 through uh, 7. It says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So real quick, all he is doing here. Um, is he's actually calling them to not look at their present circumstances and think more broadly about eternity and the holiness of God. Um, You probably recognize this scene. It's the Last Judgment uh, in the Sistine Chapel. Um, And he's not doing this in a mean way or a terrible way. I think sometimes words like wrath or judgment, um, they've been caricatured, and some of us think of them as theological cuss words. Um, But he's just saying, like, hey, we we need to know that there's a holy God and that our time is limited. Um, And that at some point, those are going to come into connection with one another. He's saying, hey, don't worry that much about those who are putting you down. Um, They, too, will have this encounter.